You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Let's grab our Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We are exiting the Gospel of Mark for a few weeks as the Lord has laid on my heart and on our staff and on our elders some topics that we want to see what God's Word has to say about them. And this one in particular is a part two, if you will, of a sermon I preached a few weeks ago. Speaking of part two, I'm so grateful for the message that Chad preached last week. I know that you were blessed by the tools that he provided through God's word to once again revisit the topic of soul care. We are human beings and we live in this world, but ultimately we are human beings with souls that differentiates ourselves from the rest of creation. And as individuals with souls, we are image bearers of the creator, the God of the universe, and our souls need care. And so I'm grateful for the tools that Chad provided for you, and I'm hoping that those tools and the messages that he's preached will serve to build a culture of soul care here at our church. But a few weeks ago, I preached a message that was essentially an expression to our church of a conclusion that our elders had come to. And that was, it is biblically allowable for women to serve as deacons, and because of that, We viewed this opportunity and this transition as something that would provide great benefit to our church. Now, most of the feedback we received is like, okay, what's the big deal? We expect this because as you've preached God's word, as we've preached about men and women and the roles and what God's word has to say about this, it seems like this is a logical conclusion. And so we got that feedback. But others had questions. And those questions primarily fell into two categories. One of them was, what is the deal with the timing? And I got to just tell you that the best answer that I can provide for you is to just pull back the curtain to let you see what our elder reality has looked like for the last few years. Our elders have responded to our church planting network dissolving and then resurrecting. Our elders have been working through the transition of our name from Harvest Bible Chapel to Ascend Church and all of the ramifications that go into that. Our elder team has been working through the sale of our building, the acquiring of land, the construction of this building. Our elder team has experienced job changes, life-impacting health realities, adding individuals to their families, both by birth and adoption, and changing jobs. Because of that, the best explanation that I can give you is that a biblical allowance topic took a back burner. And in God's providence, and according to his plan, the timing is what it is. There's no conspiracy. You're welcome to go ahead and continue those thoughts, but there's none. There's no social agenda. There's no response to what's going on in our world today. It's simply a reality that our elders have been working through, and now is the time. The second question that we have received is, could you please dig deeper into what the Scripture says about this topic? And that's what we're going to do this morning. 
And so I hope you've arrived at 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, would you please grab one in the seats in front of you and find 1 Timothy 3 on page 996. The last few months, I have become more introspective. Meaning, I have evaluated my life at a deeper level. I don't know what the cause is. Perhaps it's coming to the end of a 24-year academic journey. Maybe it's the fact that 50 years is staring me in the face on the near horizon. But whatever the issue, I have been introspective and engaging with some memories that were not on my radar for many years. One of those memories is the journeys that we would take nearly every year to visit my grandparents in Los Angeles. And as we would make that long trek in a Toyota Celica with a cat with no air conditioning across the deserts of the West, you ready to play your violin for me? (laughs) I remembered one thing that motivated me, and that was my grandmother's boysenberry jam. Oh, there's something about boysenberry. Here in the Midwest, we have blackberry, but, but, but she had boysenberry. Boysenberry is infinitely superior. We can debate that after the service. But boysenberry jam, there's something with the texture. There's something with the taste. There's something with those little seeds that just caused me to long to see grandma very quickly and then grab her boysenberry jam. But I also knew that inevitably on those trips there would be that moment when dad and mom would say, boys, it's time to clean grandma's boysenberry vineyard. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with boysenberries, I want to put a picture up on the screen. This is what boysenberry vines are supposed to look like on my right, your left. On this side over here is how I remember my grandmother's boysenberry vines. It was a mess. And by the time you got to the end of the harvest, cleaning that area out with the thorns, with the thickets, with the craziness, which was those plants, was a day that turned into days that felt like an eternity process. Now, I want you to see these pictures because I want to transition now to say that this imagery is what God's design is for the church, the one over here on the left. God's design has been for all time that his church would involve structure so that the vine can thrive. In order for boysenberries to thrive, it is important that the vine is secure, that the structure is secure, that they both are working together so that it can grow healthy, so that the plant can have access to the nutrients, so that the gardener can have access to the plant. And beloved, I think when you look at church history, the church throughout history has leaned sometimes more towards the structure At other times, it has leaned more toward the people and the vine without structure. And I would contend that the Bible says both are crucial, and that is the gardener's design. So if you look at your notes, I want you to see the big idea of our passage, and that is the trellis and the vine of the local church thrives when the parts function according to the gardener's plan. Let me read the passage that we will be studying 
And then we will dive in together. Beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with deceit, conceit, and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that they may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now, I don't know about you, but as I read this, there's a lot of repetition here, isn't there? And I don't know about you as well, but you might have listened to this as I read and said, where do we dig into the deacons allowed to be women? We'll unpack it by first looking at the health of the vine requires both. It requires both. It requires both the trellis and the vine. And in order to unpack that, let's look down at verse 14. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon. You know, I love this phrase because it reminds us that the Bible was written by humans to humans, though inspired by the Holy Spirit. That that there's a human element, a, a human interest that we can relate to as humans. And Paul is saying, my desire is to come to you soon. Now, who is he writing to? Well, if you go back to chapter 1, you see that Paul is writing to a young man named Timothy. He reflects on his relationship with Timothy in a very fond manner. Look at verse 2. He says he's my true child in the faith. There's a father-child spiritual relationship. There's a a mentor-mentee relationship. It, It reminds me of the celebration of life we had for Glenn Adams yesterday. I've had several questions as I walked in this morning with the suit. They asked me, are we having a funeral or a wedding? My response is neither. 
But Glenn Adams was the founding pastor of Berean Fundamental Church, which became Berean Bible Church, the church that actually gave us the property at 159th and Black Bob and provided the foundation for us to be what we are today. Glenn Adams passed away a few months ago, and we were able to celebrate his life yesterday. And there was a video that one of his grandsons presented that just reminded me of the faithfulness of Glenn. And one of the things I observed in this video is that anytime there was a, a picture or a video of Glenn as a pastor, he had on a suit. I think if he visited somebody in the hospital, he probably put on the pastor uniform. And we live in a different era, but I just wanted to wear this out of respect for one of my fathers in the faith. And so I can relate to this relationship that Paul is demonstrating with Timothy. And he says to Timothy, you are my true child in the faith. Therefore, I'm going to give you some tools as a father that will help you on your journey in ministry. And so he says in verse 14 of chapter 3, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you. See, here's the reality, and we have learned this over the last two years, haven't we? It's always best to communicate in person. Younger generation, hear me on that. It's fine to do the LOLs and the JKs and the emoticons, but it's always best to communicate in person. However, there are times when the message is so important that you use whatever means necessary, and that's what Paul is saying here, is that I have something so important to to, to tell you and to instruct you that it cannot wait until I can arrive. And so what are these things that he's referring to? Look back at chapter 2 and verse 1. Paul says, first of all. So I think what Paul is referring to is the first of all that begins in chapter 2, verse 1. It's instruction for young Timothy to instruct him how to conduct himself in the church. In fact, that's what he says here. Verse 15, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Beloved, the the, the church often is a topic that will allow you to engage with your baggage. We all have experiences with church, and maybe you're visiting this morning, and this is the first time you've set foot in a church for a long time, and maybe if ever. And so you've walked into this place not knowing what to expect, perhaps seeing things on social media, perhaps talking to friends or relatives who go to church, and you bring that baggage to this room. But God's word wants to move us past our baggage, past our traditions, to understand what he says his design for the church is, and it's spelled out right here in the text, it is the church of the living God. That's where it starts. It's not about an hour and a half event, as has already been said. It's not about the songs that we sing and whether or not you like or know the words, whether or not you like or appreciate the sound. It's not whether or not you you like what the pastor is wearing or how eloquent he is. Ultimately, this is about the living God. Amen. (laughs) Trying to help you out here this morning. But it is ultimately also about a trellis and a vine. My brother and I, when we were playing baseball in our early days, were invited to Wrigley Field for a tryout. 
For those of you who are not baseball fans, which most people that are here at Ascend, they they have to become baseball fans because I talk about it all the time. But Wrigley Field is the field that is a sanctuary. No, I'm just kidding. But the padding of the outfield wall is a vine. And I remember after the tryout, I I had to touch the the vine at Wrigley Field, and I went out there, and there was a a groundskeeper that was standing close by because they care very deeply about their vine. And I remembered asking him, what goes into this? What is the care? And he, he went into the explanation that there are people who their jobs are to take care of the vine. And in fact, I actually had to ask for permission to take a leaf off of the vine so that I could have it for memory's sake. People whose job it is to care for the vine. What was fascinating is that they talked about the vine in almost human terms, as as though the vine had to grow. It had to, to take to the nutrients. If the vine did not grow, they would replace it. But they also talked about the brick wall and the structure that was behind it and how the vine grows up the brick wall and how they have to make sure that they're tending for it before the season even begins and engaging with it throughout the season. And beloved, listen, that's the imagery I want us to remember when we think of the church of the living God. There is structure and there is vine. Where is the structure? Well, look what it says in verse 15. The the church is a pillar and buttress. I remember when I had this read over me as a middle school boy, I would go, buttress. (laughs) But what does this mean? Well, a pillar is something that holds up roof. It's, it's something that is in, important for the structure of a building to be sound. And in fact, what's interesting is you can write down Galatians 2.9. Often in the ancient world, a, a, a leader of an organization or a leader of a church was referred to as the pillar. So there's, there's an essence here in which the leaders of the church serve as pillars. There's, there's structure. But then there's also but. What is a buttress? A buttress is a foundation. A buttress is a bulwark in military terms. It is crucial for the defense of the city. It is crucial for a wall to stand up. It is crucial for a building to be structurally sound. In fact, there's evidence of this type of architecture all the way back to 2000 B.C., Beloved, structure is so important to a building. But, but, but listen, let's not press the architecture too much. The, the point of the pillar and the buttress is in a word right here in the text. Do you see it? Verse 15, it is a pillar and buttress. Would, would you look at the text? Eyes down at your text, looking at God's inspired, infallible, and, and relevant word. It is a pillar and support of what? The truth. Would you underline that? Circle it. Box it. Whatever you need to do. Because listen, in our day, truth is a moving target, isn't it? It is dependent on how many letters are after your name, or what study has been done, or what newspaper or periodical you, you, are, you present your opinions in. But beloved, listen, it is even more tragic than that today. It is judge and jury, people think the individual is that. 
What's most important when we think of truth is, what do I think about it? What do you think about it? Well, let's just assume that my definition of truth is truth, and you can have your definition. Let's just not make sure that they interact. Beloved, there is a truth that is timeless, that timeless, that impacts every generation, every context, every society, and it is God's Word. Write down John 17. Verse 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your, your word is truth. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 4, 5. Oh, I wish I could unpack this, but there, there, will be a come, there will come a time, Paul says, when people will assemble for themselves teachers who will scratch their itchy ears, and that is happening all over our country today. It is happening in our community this morning at places called church where people want to hear what they want to hear, and they will not receive the truth. And pastors, they call themselves that, will dole it out. And Paul says there will come a day when this will happen, and that day is now, and that day will continue, and the solution is back up in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God and the people of God can be equipped for every good work. Beloved, the church, the local church, is intended to be the pillar and the support of the truth, the trellis. But it's not just the trellis. The the, the trellis is not the end game. How many times have you heard people say, I'm a trelliser? They don't say that. They're gardeners. Why? Because they understand the end game is not the structure, it's a healthy crop, it's the vine. And that's actually included right here in the text as well. Look at verse 15. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave. Would you underline that word as well? The word behave means to conduct oneself with apparent focus on overt daily behavior. Let me summarize it with these two words, pattern of life. It's three words. Beloved, behavior in church is not a weekly activity. Behavior in church is not when you're just before the leadership. Behavior in church is a 24-7 pursuit of Christ. And that's why verse 16 is important. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Jesus is the epicenter of truth. He's the epicenter of the church. He's the epicenter of our behavior. So, beloved, listen, if we want to have a healthy church, if we want to have a healthy vine, because at the end of the day it is about the people, then both the trellis and the vine are required. Number two, health relishes leadership. Health relishes leadership. Chapter 3 and verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. This is dependable. The word is actually literally in the Greek, faithful. If anyone aspires or desires the office of an overseer, the the English translators added the word office because they wanted us to understand that Paul is referring specifically to the office of elder in the church. You can write down Acts chapter 20. 
verse 17 and 28. You can look at this later, but there are three words that are used interchangeably for this specific office. There are shepherds, there are elders, and there are overseers. And I think it's interesting and and not coincidence that Paul says in verse 1, he desires a noble task. The word is literally work. And all the elders would say, amen. Leadership certainly is a work. The leadership of the church is entrusted to a plurality of men who are character qualified and theologically sound to lead the church. Write down these verses. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Beloved, listen, that verse is one that causes a lot of Americans to... Obey your leaders. Submit to your leaders. But beloved, from the beginning of time, we have a propensity to resist leadership, don't we? Go back to the Garden of Eden. How did that go? God said that one of the collateral damages of the, of the fall was that wives would want to rule over their husbands and husbands would tend to domineer or give up their leadership roles Leadership is something that humanity grates against. So does the unseen Rome, Genesis 6. Look at after the flood with Noah, Genesis 9, 1, be fruitful and multiply and fill what? The earth, Genesis 11. They settled in one spot trying to make a name for themselves. And the purpose, see, I think so many people say the Tower of Babel was was all about building a, a high structure. I don't think that's what God was angered about. The people actually said, so that we are not dispersed, they're going directly against the leadership of God. Look at the Jews with Moses and God in numbers, grumbling, complaining, Look at Israel when it came to the leadership and the oversight of nations. Look at the zealots during the Gospels. Look at church history. Look at at revolutions. Look at us today. How many times do students complain about their teachers? Don't answer that, students. How many times do kids complain about their parents? How many times do citizens complain about their country? How many times do church members complain about their elders? How many times do athletes complain about the refs? That one's okay. Just kidding. (laughs) Beloved, we have a propensity to kick against leadership, and leadership has a propensity to not fulfill their roles. So that's why the gardener knew There were some qualifications that were required. We're going to fly by these, but verse 2 says they must be. It's a present tense verb. This means these leaders are to be characterized by these qualifications. Paul has just unpacked in chapter 2 the leanings that human beings have inside the church as well to kick against God's design. Men and women kicking against God's design. That's what chapter 2 is about. And, and Paul recalibrating that, trying to have gospel unity and garden unity within the church. And so he arrives at chapter 3, building upon that foundation. That's important, especially when it comes to the topic of deacons as women. It says in verse 2, they are to be above reproach. Would you write out to the side? 
This means to not have stickiness. To not have stickiness. It it, it does not mean that elders have to be perfect, but what it means is, is that if you have an accusation against their character, it doesn't stick. Beloved, we have an amazing group of elders that are absolutely not perfect, least of all the pastor. But I can tell you this, that if any of you were to come up to me and tell me something horrific or disqualifying about these men, my immediate response is, that's not them. That's what above reproach means. But, 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 but I love this because look at the first thing that he says in verse 2. Above reproach means the husband of one wife. Would you, would you underline that? And, and I think this is an unfortunate English translation because the point isn't marriage. The point is thought life. It has nothing to do with marriage except what is going on below the surface. And listen, there are a lot of men in our community and even in this church who are married to one woman but are not qualified in this concept. It does not simply mean you have one wife. It means that when you interact in your mind with the opposite sex, it's purity. That you take thoughts captive. In fact, it literally says one woman man. They take their thoughts captive to obedience in Christ. And this was especially important in the Roman Empire where anything went. It's especially important for us today. When ladies run on the side of the road in their underwear... When images on advertisements are designed to appeal to the flesh. Beloved, in our day and age, it is crucially important that the elders of the church and all Christian men are one women, men. I told you we'd fly by these. I haven't. But let me fly by them. He goes on to say in verse 3 that they must be theologians apt to teach. Sorry, the end of verse 2. He says that they must be in control of their emotions, in control of their character, in control of their alcohol, in control of their money, in control of their household, not controlled by them. That's an important reality. In fact, verse 4 says they must manage their household well. See, here's the challenge, is that a lot of times men leave it all on the field at the workplace or in their calling, and when they get home, they're like, okay, I'm done. There are a lot of men who leave the managing of the household to their wives. This is my wife's responsibility. But Paul says, no, 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 no. Listen, the reality is you men are called to manage your household well. And yes, our wives play a role, but men, let's make sure that the calling does not end at the office. The calling, elders, does not end In this place, the calling extends to the home. Verse 6, they are to be humble. And then in verse 7, it's not just the church where you're one thing and in the world you're another. You are the same here and everywhere. That's one of the things I loved about Pastor Adams. People referred to him as pastor, but he was also the same when he was Glenn. So, If we have this kind of leadership in our church, we should relish it. Amen? 
So how can you do that? Let me give you three quick ways. Number one, make it easy to be led. Would you please write that down? This is one of those rare opportunities that I get to speak as a leader to the flock and say, would you do this for us? Biblically speaking, make it easy to be led. That doesn't mean that you always have to agree with us. That doesn't mean that you think that we walk on clouds. It doesn't mean that you, you, you see us as humans, but then you put a halo over our heads. But listen, you cultivate Christ-honoring discipleship. You cultivate humility. You cultivate these characteristics. And guess what? You will be easy to be led. Number two, pray for us. When's the last time you've prayed by name, for not only the elders, but their wives and their households. And beloved, we have right now in our elder team health needs, job needs, family needs, wisdom needs. Would you please pray for the leadership? Number three, encourage the leadership. Now, I'm not trying to get compassion points here, but I can tell you this. Most of the emails that come to elders at ascendkc.org are requests, feedback, usually of the negative kind. One day, would you drop an email to the elders at ascendkc.org, and if you can, genuinely thank these men for being these kind of leaders that are leading you according to the truth of Christ. Health relishes leadership. Number three, health relies on administration. <laughs> Would you write this down? Second Peter chapter 3, verse 16. It's, it's almost like you have two rivals, Peter and Paul. And Peter's reflecting fondly, but also a little ugh, like a Kansas, Missouri friend. And he says in chapter 3, verse 16 of Second Peter that there are some things that are hard to understand in Paul's writings. And he's talking about theology, but he's also talking about flow. Paul is deep in his thinking, and he also follows rabbit trails. You can tell he's a preacher. Paul will be talking about one thing, and all of a sudden take a rabbit trail, and then another rabbit trail, and then this rabbit trail, and then this rabbit trail. You remember the movie Up? It's like the dog, squirrel. That is is Doug. I think that's the name of the dog. Uh, But that is Paul. Paul constantly is going down one path and then diverting. And so you have to sometimes look at the flow of Paul's writings and look for grammatical clues, and that is what he gives us in verse 8. Deacons likewise. The term deacon by Paul's day was moving from a concept to a technical term. All throughout the New Testament, and in fact, in in Jesus' communication with the disciples in in John 13, he instructs them we are to serve one another, we are to deacon one another. But by the time Paul is writing this passage, it's actually now a technical term. And so Paul is saying that there are individuals within the church who are technically servants. They are administrators. They are stewards. We'll get to that in just a moment. It was foreshadowed in Acts 6, 1 through 6. Do you know that if you get much more than 10 people, it's helpful to have help? I mean, look at families where there's a a husband and a wife with five-plus kids. That's why people join churches with seven or more kids. Just kidding. 
But the fact is, is that we need help. We need stewardship. We need administration. It was foreshadowed in Acts 6. It continued with references in Romans 16, verse 1, and then introductions like Philippians 1 and verse 1. Speaking of this, I, I love movies. I always look for an opportunity to get baseball or movies into a sermon. And, and there's this culture that is developed with going to movies throughout my lifetime, and that is that we, 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 we watch movies, and we laugh, and we cry, and we clap, and we shush. Which, by the way, my, my daughter, this isn't in the notes, but I have time. My daughter was watching one of the Star Wars movies where, where Han Solo dies. And so if you've never seen this before, sorry. But, but she's sitting there on my lap. And, and she's sitting there, and, and Han Solo and, and Kylo Ren are on this bridge. And my daughter whispers in a loud whisper, I can't believe he dies. And the guy next to us goes, oh, because he hadn't seen it yet. He was wearing like a Yoda t-shirt. He was one of those. Don't worry, I, I'm one of those. One day if somebody gives me a stormtrooper outfit, I've, I've promised I will preach in a stormtrooper outfit. I digress, I'm human. Let's get back on. See, Paul, meet rabbit tarials, that's, that's what we're doing here. Back to the text. I love movies, but what has typically happened is that as soon as the movie is over and the credits roll, what happens to the auditorium? Gone. Now, Marvel has changed that a little bit. Because if you've never seen a Marvel movie, there are post-credit scenes. And so oftentimes there's two. So what happens is, is the audience is sitting there, the credits are rolling, and people are staying. And one of the benefits of that is something that my friends in the film industry have told me. And that is that it often takes a village or a small town to help Chris Pratt become Star-Lord. Guardians of the Galaxy, watch it on clear play. But beloved, what that has helped us remember is that servants and behind the scenes people and administration and stewardship is crucial. And that's what Paul must have been thinking, not about movies, but about this concept. And so he, he's going through and he's saying there's elders and they must be teaching theology. They must be leading the church. They are the overseers. But then there's also the crucial role of deacons. And he says, likewise. So he's, he's drawing from the first seven verses. Look at the next word, must be. That's not in the original text. But what the English translators provide it because they understand the flow of thought of Paul as he's saying, listen, likewise. So, so what I just said about elders, the concept continues with deacons. And that is, this role is so important that they must be qualified in character. Humble, controlling their character, controlling their emotions, controlling their alcohol, their, their, their household, their, their money, and not being controlled. Now, he doesn't just throw out theology, although that's the one distinction here. They don't need to be able to teach. But it does say in verse 9 that they need to hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Deacons, beloved, must be characterized by being in, immersed in, and living out God's word. He says in verse 10, let them also be tested first. That means they need to have patterns of this character, patterns of service, and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. 
Now, at this point, Paul is staying on track, isn't he? There, there's leaders, there's oversight, there's service, but now you're starting to see Paul stray a little bit in verse 11. And I think the reason that he does is because he's reflecting on chapter 2. He's reflecting on the potential conflict of men and women outside of the church because of creation, but also inside the church. So he says in verse 11, likewise. Now, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. I'm not able to find a strong argument for the English translation here. The English translation says they're wise, but, but I, I've not read and I can't find a strong argument for why the English translators translated this. Let me, let me give you some reasons. There's no possessive pronoun. It does not say there in the Greek. It literally says the plural noun women. Women likewise. Now, why is that important? Well, remember the flow. Remember, context is king. Paul has just used this same term four times in chapter 2. Let me give you the references. You can look at them later. Verse 9, verse 10, verse 12, and verse 14. So I think when you look at those four uses, the the strength of the argument is that Paul is continuing this concept. He's remembering the conflict after the fall between men and women, and he's saying, okay, now women likewise. Now, I'll get to the likewise in just a moment, but let's remember the historical context. In the Jewish and the Roman culture, women were relegated to low class. They were the bottom of the totem pole. And Paul has been preaching that in the gospel, that is not the case. In fact, would you write down Galatians 3.28? In Christ, there's neither male nor female. At the foot of the cross and within the church, every man and woman are equal in personhood and value before God and before each other. But there are still different roles. And that's what's going to lead us into verse 12. So Paul says, likewise, signaling the readers that in the same fashion as elders, in the same fashion as deacons, men deacons, he's now introducing a third group of people that he's about to address. And this third group of people are women who serve as deacons. How can I tell that? Well, look at the qualifications, verse verse 11. Dignified, not slanderers, sober-minded, faithful in all things. Beloved, Paul is taking a rabbit trail here that is also associated with what he's been talking about. And what he's saying is, there are also deacons who are women, but let me make sure that you understand, the right women must be serving as deacons. And the right women are in the same vein as the elders, in the same vein as the male deacons, supposed to control their emotions, control their alcohol, control their household, and not be controlled by them. How many times do we see women in our community who are controlled by their household, by their identity that is communicated, by their relationship status by how their kids look what activities they're involved in what the size of their house is what their husband does what he makes not controlled by that controlling that controlling their thoughts when it comes to that they are to be humble but another aspect of this that i think paul would have included had this been the wives of the deacons is some mention of qualifications 
of the wives of the elders. There's no mention of that in verses 1 through 7. So, beloved, at a minimum, it is important for us to understand that this is an allowance for women to serve as deacons. But you can almost see the mind of Paul as he went down this rabbit trail coming back in verse 12 to the design of the creator. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife. So now he's back to the men who serve as deacons. And and why is he saying that? Because again, it is important in the Roman context as well as ours today that men are blameless beginning in their thought life. I don't know much about women. Been married for 23 years. Trying to grow in that, have three girls and a female dog. So it's almost like God is trying to teach me something. And I'm trying to learn, but I have so much room to grow. Don't say anything, family. But it's as if Paul is coming back to the men and saying, listen, women and men are wired differently. Men can go down to lust when they see a woman wearing a paper bag. So deacons that are men, remember this. You must be pure in your thought life. You must be a one-woman man in your purity. You must control your thought life. But listen, there still is a role and a responsibility that God has for the men in the home. They are to manage their children and their households well. This is going back to the creation design. So what is God saying here through Paul? To his child in the faith, Timothy, the administration of the church is important. And the qualifications of these administrators is crucial. The word administration means to keep order. We see it in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 28. What this means is that all of us as Christians are to serve one another. All of us are to look in the lobby for opportunities to pick up trash, to help parents with their kids, to be able to pick up things, to be able to step in when there are needs in the church. This is the concept of our minds as Christians. But then there are supposed to be individuals who are characterized by this quality of their character and the patterns of their life that make sure that they administrate this. And what does that look like here to send? Well, the the, the deacons administrate three areas. You can write these down if you'd like. The finances, the facility, and our family. Making sure that the widows have their needs met. Making sure that when there are financial or physical needs in the church, that we have a a point of contact to ensure that those needs are being met. These deacons are not asked. Listen to this. Deacons are not asked to do everything. They're they're asked to make sure that this stuff gets done. So, beloved, you are all deputized as servants, but we need people who are qualified like this, men and women who can administrate the church. And, beloved, listen, health relies on administration. Which brings us to number four. Health reveres faithfulness. Verse 13, literally in the original, reads like this. For the ones having served well themselves obtain for themselves good and much confidence in faith in Christ Jesus. So verse 13 says, for those who serve well as deacons, which is a translator decision to say, well, we think that the context is deacons, and I think it includes deacons and elders. Because this reminds us that elders, despite them being leaders and authority in their church, also serve. And so those who serve in faithfulness 
will be benefited by the reverence not only of their church, but also what Paul reveals their benefit is in this passage. You know, three years into marriage, baseball was in the rearview mirror, and I didn't know what to do with my life, so I wanted to coach college baseball, so I talked to an athletic director, a friend of mine, who said, you have to have a master's degree. So I got my MBA. Then God called me into ministry, and I learned from talking to pastors that there's value in gaining tools that a master's degree will provide for you. So we packed everything up, went to Los Angeles, spent three more years pursuing a master's of divinity. And then about six years into being a pastor, I came to the realization that I'm constantly pouring out and I need to be poured into. And if I'm supposed to be a theologian, I need to have the tools and the the equipping to be able to think theologically. And so I pursued this most recent degree. And and my wife and I were sitting down this last week and reflecting on the fact that for 14 years of our marriage, all we've known is academics. And we figured out how to, to re, figure out how to fall into routines. And my dear family and my girls have spent 40% of their lives with their dad as, as a student. It's funny, I go into places and I get a student discount and they kind of look at me like, is this a forgery? <laughs> but what we've realized is that this, this faithfulness, this, this has been waiting. And so now we're looking at each other and we're like, what do we do? And so there's a blessing when you get to a place where you realize, man, This has been a season of faithfulness to see that God actually gives you benefits. Verse 13, it says, those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. When you serve well in the church for an extended period of faithfulness, the only one you can point to as the reason for that is Christ. I'm telling you, ministry is tough. I'm getting out the violin again. I was reminded of that as we reflected on the faithfulness of Glenn Adams. Ministry is challenging. Whether you're in leadership, whether you're a layperson, whether you're a servant, ministry is tough. And when you look at your life and you see there's been faithfulness despite the toughness, it's not us, it's Christ. But the second benefit is someone serves in faithfulness and leads in faithfulness is that the church has an opportunity to revere respect and honor them. And friends, you do this for us and to us as a family, as a leadership team so often. You step up, you support. When we have new nominations for deacons, those nominees will be ready to prayerfully consider and to step up and fill in the gap. And you might listen to a sermon like this and say, wait a minute, you spent very relatively little time on women as deacons, and there's a point to that. Because women as deacons is not the point of the health of the trellis and the vine. It is simply a section of the trellis. And as we look at this, I hope you can see as we've unpacked what God's role is for men and women, as you look at what the roles of who is required to be leaders, it is the men and the men only to preach the word to men, to exercise authority over men that is reserved exclusively for men. We covered that in chapter 2. But then when it comes to the administration, man, we need all hands on deck, and men and women are included in that. But the end game is not the structure. The end game is not the trellis. The end game is the vine. So I invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want to first ask, how are you doing as a vine?